I just, sorry, I heard a big thump out there. <laughs> it's Sarah Michelle Geller's bodyguard. <laughs> She's here. Like, pounding on the door. I told you. When will these rumors stop? <laughs> Welcome to Cancer for Breakfast with Amy and Steph. I'm Amy. And I'm Steph. We try to make cancer for breakfast safe and comfortable for everyone, it may not be suitable for all audiences and is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We're not doctors. We didn't even go to podcasting school. <laughs> Steph. Hi, Amy. Welcome to Cancer for Breakfast. I'm Amy. That's Steph. It's true. And if we sound uh, like we've done this four times already, mm -hmm. it's because we have. <laughs> it's because we suck so bad right now. And we're just we're just going to keep this one rolling. Not only have we done it four times today, not like the whole episode, but we'll do like 10 or 15 minutes or five minutes. or I don't even know what time is, but... Then one of us will be like, does this suck? Should we just start over? And then yeah. we both are like, oh, my God, I hate it. Because this fucking subject is hard to talk about. But also, I need to tell you about, unless Steph tells me no. No, please do. Uh, we Air my dirty laundry. Go ahead. did record the entire episode. It was like an hour and a half long recording two nights ago. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of the episode, we joked that Steph brought a cocktail and she didn't tell me that we were having a drink or I would have had a drink with her and stuff. And we make some funny jokes about that, um, that you'll never hear. You'll never hear them now because, listeners, I got fucking sloshed. <laughs> and it was not a good look for our metastatic episode, even though I feel like metastatic people would understand. Totally. <laughs> and I actually don't know why I didn't assume you would show up with a drink or two in you just to loosen up and why I didn't bring one as well. But like, I feel like as the episode progressed, I was like, I don't know if we're going to probably use this one. When I was like, and another thing about cancer. <laughs> You know who I hate, Amy? <laughs> Cancer. Oh, it was... You were not wrong. Every single thing you said was incredibly well said, actually, <laughs> and incredibly true. But I just feel like you sounded drunk. Like, I feel like, especially uh -huh. for our regular Accurate. listeners, would, and I, was, I sounded very much like me, so it would be you <laughs> being like, I'm going to read a really long letter from so-and-so. <laughs> We had to cut it down because it was a little long, but, and then you'd read three sentences and then say, oh, and you know what she's <laughs> saying here? Do you know what she's saying here? And then you would break down what she was saying and then you'd go back and you'd read like four more sentences and then you'd stop and then you'd go on like another three minute thing about whatever the person said. And I was like, if this is a long letter, I, I, I don't know, maybe you should just read it. <laughs> you know? Settle in, settle in. <laughs> Drunk well, Stephanie's got some thoughts to share. I love her. I love oh, her. Oh, man. Um, and also, let's be honest, it's the second time we've had to throw away an episode because we were drunk. 
The first one was about drinking when we got drunk, but I forgot to record it because I was drunk. I forgot it's to true. record my side of it. We would have actually used it. That was a theme, though. You know, we, we had that idea. It was a concept. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was on purpose. But this was not on purpose. And I am so sorry for wasting your time, Amy. But I also will say, not that there's anything wrong, wrong with getting you know, having metastatic breast cancer and getting drunk before you do a podcast about metastatic breast cancer. But you did say, what did you say? You'd only had like a muffin at like 8 a.m. I had a muffin at 8 a.m. It's true. And then yeah. you had a couple of drinks. And so like, yeah, what are you supposed to do? Well, ideally, I think you're supposed to eat more than a muffin in a day. I mean, that's what the cancer nutritionist tells me <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's true um before we do get into our topic is there anything else that we should cover really quickly oh do you have something coming up i do i have some scans coming up um my regular old three-month scans mm -hmm, mm -hmm. are on the cal for a week and a half or so from now Yes. And, you know, this is just part of the deal, mm -hmm. as you guys know, or maybe you don't know because you're a brand new listener. I have metastatic breast cancer. And um, part of the whole kit and caboodle is that every 90 days-ish, I get scanned to see if my medication is working. Mm -hmm. And it has been working amazingly, the last two scans. It has. It has. You're almost NED, which we'll talk more about what that might mean later in the episode for for folks. Yeah. Um, but definitely every finger, toe. What did you say the other day? Cross your fingers, toads, and braid your hair. <laughs> and braid your hair. I loved it. Yes. Um, yeah. Before we do go on, there's one thing. I wanted to say we all know that talking about advanced cancer, what that entails and how scary it is for all of us. Let's face it, no matter what stage of cancer you have had, do you have where you're at and that that don't don't you say journey, Amy, don't you say journey. <laughs> um but it is scary and hearing other people's stories is stories is really scary. It's complicated, but I do encourage you to stick around. I really do. Yeah. Because I think it just makes it better to like hold space for everyone's story and not be afraid of our fellow human, you know? That's right. And Amy, you've got some aftercare for us as a treat, right? Oh, well, no, this is a, <laughs> this is not aftercare. This is a... What's it called when you bribe someone? It's called bribery, I believe. I'm I'm going to entice you to stick around through this episode because I, you know, I, I like a dumb game. Don't we all? I like a dumb thing. I, lo I love a dumb thing. We ordered Chinese food from a wonderful place in Portland called Shandong. Y'all should get it if you live here. What's up? Um, there was an unopened, I didn't even know we had, what are these things called? Fortune cookies? Mm -hmm. I'm going to read this at the end of the episode, and we're going to call this our collective fortune as a Cancer for Breakfast episode group of listeners. A family? Let's just... <gasps> I wasn't sure if they were ready. <laughs> I didn't want to be too forward. <laughs> yeah. So stick around. I'll read our fortune. 
If it's bad, you know I'm going to cut it out. I wouldn't do that to you. And if it's good, maybe it'll become the title of this episode. Ooh. We'll see. I love it. Um, great. Well. Here we go. Here we go. Dive, dive in. Hold your nose. This kind of sucks. Should we re-record? I'm just kidding. Nope. I'm just kidding. Water is cold. <laughs> well, I have made a list of just some key things that I wanted to bring up myself because, as Amy said, I'm only a year into this. Mm-hmm. And clearly, I have really gotten into the research and all of that. And frankly, it's taken up a lot of my life, but that doesn't mean I'm an expert mm-hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. There are people who have been playing this game for 20 years and, you know, those are the ones that we should be hearing from. Yeah. But I just made a quick little list of things mm-hmm. that have helped me to remember, to do, to get in order, all all of that stuff. And I wanted to share them with our listeners. Great. And some of this is echoed in some of the notes that we got from people when we asked what their advice would be to new Mm -hmm. metastatic folks. And I guess we didn't really give a definition of what we mean when we say metastatic or stage four or advanced cancer. Obviously, that covers a lot of ground. Mm -hmm. So as with everything in our podcast, I feel like people can just take what applies to them, take what resonates with them, and they can just leave the rest. So Hopefully, folks will take that into Mm -hmm. consideration when we're talking about things. Um, But one of the most important things that my oncology team has impressed upon me is that, at least for my condition and for a lot of advanced cancers, it's a chronic condition. You know, because of the advances in medication and treatment and stuff, Yes, cancer doesn't look like it did you know, 10, 20 years ago, it's a Mm -hmm. totally different thing. And it's being managed a lot better. There are more medications for palliative care. So like, you're not just sick as a dog all the time. And Mm -hmm. the drugs are getting easier to tolerate. They're more effective and stuff. And so for a lot of us, it really is just a chronic condition. It's not this Mm -hmm. really harrowing experience that it is for some stage four cancer people, but definitely fewer of us, I think, than it used to be. Another thing that I have found really important is getting comfortable with your care team. If you have an oncologist that you feel like doesn't listen to you or Mm -hmm. you don't feel comfortable talking to them about every single symptom or side effect you're having, then that is not the person for you. Yes. Because this is a really intense relationship that you have with, with this care team. It's a very personal relationship that you have with them. And frankly, it can be a really embarrassing relationship. Like Mm -hmm. you've got to share a lot about yourself. They're going to see parts of your body that, you know, are maybe Mm -hmm. difficult to show. You're going to have to give answers to questions that are personal. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't have a care team that you like or you trust or you feel confident in and you feel comfortable with, then get somebody else as long as you can. And also they get dumped all the time. We talk about it in other episodes Do not feel bad for you don't even have to tell them you're dumping them. You just get another opinion. If you like that next surgeon, oncologist, whoever better, they just take your info from your chart and move you on over. And you need to be with someone who you believe gives a fuck. Don't say fuck, Amy. Gives a shit if you (laughs) live or die. Like who you really 
like I feel like my oncologist really cares about me. Yeah. But she doesn't want to bullshit me either. And I think that that's really important because if I felt like she was like looking at her notes every single time I saw her to see what my deal was, I would be like, do you even know me? You know? Absolutely. And one of our listeners, Lindsay, wrote in to say basically exactly that. She says, I wish I had known that I needed to see a specialist for my rare aggressive cancer. I also wish I had known that no one is going to advocate for you except for you. Mm -hmm. Don't be afraid to be loud about what you need. Your life isn't as important to your doctors as it is to you. Mm -hmm. Follow your gut. Don't let things slide and get second opinions. I also feel like if any time in your life you've wanted to be more of a advocate for yourself or more outspoken in general for things that you just kind of want to call bullshit with going through cancer is a really great time to like take that step yeah even if it seems like an uncomfortable thing especially to like a doctor who is like an authoritative character right but now is the time it's so funny that you say that because i have seen and i'm sure you have too people in like the waiting room and stuff be just abusive to the nursing staff and stuff and these people are so used to it that they're just like mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I hear you I understand mm. <laughs> and luckily you know I feel like most healthcare providers and their staff are really compassionate people mm -hmm. but god it just goes to show like they really do hear it all and if yeah. you are politely but firmly advocating for yourself and what you need mm-hmm they're not going to be like, fuck this lady. You know, they're yeah. going to be like, yes, absolutely. We want to do the best for you. And advocating might be them strongly suggesting something. And then you asking like really pointed questions that you feel like are challenging what they're saying to you, which you could do in a, as a conversation. You know, it just might not be your personality type to be like, you know, like the the person who wrote that letter didn't have an idea that she should be seeing a specialist. You should just ask your oncologist, is there a specialist in this neighborhood? neighborhood? Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm drunk. <laughs> is there a specialist in this neighborhood? Or like, you know, for my specific type, because as you start learning more, especially if you're newly diagnosed, they're taking more tests, they're doing more scans, they're finding out more about the traits and the grade and the whatever of your tumor. Yeah. Or if you have a rare type, you know. Maybe they'll say, yeah, or an, a hospital that has like a research thing going on. Absolutely. And I think that some of us live in places where there's one oncologist, you know, it's just like maybe one or two, maybe there's a small practice of mm -hmm. oncologists, but they don't have a specialty. They're just the oncologist in town. Right. And I'm sure, you know, that works just fine for a lot of patients. Mm -hmm. But if you have the ability to go someplace that's got providers who have those specialties, it is proven that your outcome is statistically likely to be better. Mm -hmm. So um, if you're able to travel just a little ways, like I do, to go to Seattle, it's an hour, but it's doable. I listen mm -hmm. to a podcast. It's fine. But on the flip of that, sometimes a general, like I'll use the example of a general surgeon, might actually be a great breast surgeon also. But doing some investigation into what others are saying or, you know, how many breast surgeries they do and all of that stuff. Like we have a friend 
who is currently dealing with that right now, where her insurance will only cover a specific surgeon who can get her in at a specific time. So she's like, do I wait multiple months yeah. and not get this surgery to try and find a breast specialist or whatever? Or do I just do what they're telling me? And then she's asked. She's asked people in our group. She's asked people in. she's a local person. So I added her to the Portland Young Breast Cancer Group. And yeah, and a ton of people are saying, that surgeon's great. I loved her. I loved her. She did a great job. I got, you know, did this through her. And so I... I feel like hopefully she's having some answers. Yeah. The insurance system is so frustrating. And another listener of ours, Karen, wrote in to say that she wished she had insisted on a PET scan because her insurance wasn't going to cover it and her oncologist didn't offer. And she says she was diagnosed in 2019 with stage three and given a bone scan only. And then two years later, it has metastasized to her liver and she thinks it was there all along. And so, you know, things like this are hard when we don't know what to ask for. We're expected to be the experts all of a sudden. Yeah. Or if you think that a bone scan does cover your entire body, you know. Right. To know even to ask the question, like, is this particular scan going to show my organs or, you know, like, do you even know if your cancer even goes in the organs or if it just goes to the bones like that kind of stuff, especially when you're like new in this game, you don't even know to ask these questions, which is so hard. It is hard. And that's why I feel like it's so important to have a great relationship with your medical oncologist so that they hopefully will volunteer the information to you. But If they don't, you can confidently say, what am I looking at here? Where could the cancer spread to? What would those symptoms be? How can we Mm -hmm. test for it? And you should be confident that those scans and studies and tests will be available to you. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, progression can happen really quickly for some people and you want to be able to catch it and treat it. Yeah. So, yeah, Karen is right on with that one. Um. Another thing that I wanted to mention to people is that you could and should designate a friend as a point person. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe your sister or your brother or a cousin or, um, you know, a close friend, somebody who can be the one to organize the meal train mm-hmm. to keep people updated, you know, in a more casual way. If you want to set up a GoFundMe and a CaringBridge account, you know, maybe this person could be the administrator on your GoFundMe. So you don't have to be the one sending thank you messages and all of that. It doesn't sound like it's a big time investment, but all of these little things add up. And sometimes you're just so fucking tired of being the cancer person. Also, it's so overwhelming, like the GoFundMe thing. And like, you might, it's hard to look and see who is writing messages or yeah donating it's just like you're very on display you totally are and it's it's really hard for a lot of us to accept money and accept help and donations and it's okay to just take yourself out of that equation mm-hmm. and let somebody else handle the little details of it um hopefully there's somebody in your life who's willing to do that for you And then if you want to start a CaringBridge account, um, CaringBridge is a great website. It's free. You just uh, make an account 
and you can limit the audience where people have to register to view your updates. Mm -hmm. But it's a great way for you to personally update people without having to go person by person to everybody who asks, how are you? How's treatment going? Mm -hmm. Blah, blah, blah. Because especially if you know this is going to be a long haul, it's it's not worth it to just have those conversations as they come having just one one specific point where people can go and then you can have normal conversations with your friends it doesn't have to be all about cancer all the time or like if you don't want to have your entire facebook or instagram knowing every little right thing that's going on you know maybe you're friends with a bunch of coworkers, or you have you know like someone in our uh Facebook group crying in my nightgown was saying like, I think we were talking about whether people have gone public or if they keep private about it. And she said, like, I have a very uh, public job in my community and I just don't want to put that out there, you know? Yeah. But I do think that a lot of people do handle stuff privately. I also wonder, too, I actually asked you about this when you were getting diagnosed before you had told everybody and these are the first couple of days because I actually had been thinking about this because at that point you know I was just out of my breast cancer treatment and I was Mm -hmm. just so sure that I was going to have a they don't call it a relapse folks recurrence this is called chemo brain my (laughs) friends it really is um but I was thinking Jesus I just went through all of this and maybe some listeners have had this experience I just went through all of this stuff that was public and now I'm apparently quote unquote done. And then if I become metastatic, that will be me for the rest of my life. And I can choose when I would like to share that with everybody because once I share it, you can't unshare that, right? Yeah. Like once you have said it. And so I just told it to you, like not trying to be like, don't tell anyone or that you in any way should keep anything private. But I was just like, just know that like that, like you can't unsay it. So like if you want, need a few more days of like going to the coffee shop without anyone looking at you while you're dealing with all of this stuff, you know, and like, It's such good advice, though, what you said, that you can't unsay it. And lots of people, you know, we talked about this in our Facebook group, when you want to share and when you want to stay private. And it came up because of uh, Norm MacDonald. You know, we were talking about Uh how how he had this private battle and like other celebrities have, too. And it's such a personal choice. You don't have to tell Mm -hmm. anybody. But you should absolutely not feel like you need to save anybody from your pain or something because that's what right friends and family are here for right and that leads me actually to one of my other tips um which sounds ominous but i'm linking it to this conversation for a reason get your affairs in order (laughs) and i actually think that getting your affairs in order is a great idea for anybody in Mm -hmm. any situation whether you're ill or not ill I think everybody should have a will and stuff. But a lot of times employers do some shady shit when they find out that you are a cancer patient Mm -hmm. and they find ways to decrease your hours or sneakily terminate you. Mm -hmm. Gladly, there are lots of legal resources for people with cancer. There's one called the Cancer Legal Resource Center. Um, It's in Los Angeles. And... Their phone number, I have it for you, is 
213-736-1455 or toll free is 866-843-2572. And they have a whole legal aid team that can help you if you're facing workplace discrimination, if you need help getting benefits, anything like that. They also help you with wills and things like that. But as far as wills go, there's a really cool organization called freewill.com and they partner with charities and offer totally free templates for making out your last will and testament. What a great name for that. I know, right? That's like the thing where you just are like, what about if there was like a a will (laughs) business called free will? And then someone's like, just fucking do it. It'll be a success. Even if you're (laughs) shitty at it, like people will like the name. They'll use it. Yeah, it's great. It's just like a series of forms that you submit, like your name and, you know, your date of birth and what your assets are and things like that. And um, you go through it. It's totally free and it's legally binding. Mm -hmm. So that's another great free resource. But your cancer center, hopefully, if it's a larger facility, they also should have a department that is able to help you with all of that stuff, like finances. They can help you get financial aid. They can get you hooked up with disability services if you need those. And they can help you with end of life planning, things like that. Because we all have an end of our lives, even when you're not metastatic. And also, what a good thing to do before you're already having to deal with cancer or anything. But then none of us do. Right, right. And I I know so many families, like, we're getting to the age I am and, you know, you're the same age as me. But when you're like 40 your friends' parents start dying. And Mm -hmm. I have several friends who have had a lot of hassle because their parents died without a will or, you know, without any estate planning. Even if you feel like you don't really have anything to give or to pass on, you you do. Mm -hmm. So just do it. Don't leave your friends and family with that bullshit to take care of. Yeah. I feel like it's like less for you to worry about, especially because like we don't want to be a burden to people. And that's I feel like such a feeling of having cancer sometimes is just like even that people have to worry about you makes you feel bad, even though you should not feel bad. Like I was saying, that's what being a community is, is being there for people. Yeah. But I do feel like that's something that makes you kind of feel like I'm going to try to just do this but why do we keep talking about this because jesus these poor people that are like brand (laughs) new in this and they're like i'm just so scared of dying we're like so get a will (laughs) pick out a gravestone (laughs) i'm just kidding you don't have to do that although you know for some of us uh one of my friends died she was a an elderly woman she died recently and um she had every single aspect of her funeral planned out. Mm-hmm. She had painstakingly just gone through all of her possessions. They were all, you know, allotted for certain people. She knew what readings she wanted done. She knew how she wanted, you know, her body taken care of. Mm-hmm. It was it was amazing. And I was just like, man, that actually sounds kind of fun. If you're that type of person like I am who loves to fucking plan things because you're a total control freak. I was like, yes. I'm going to have to do that, too. 
Die how you live as a total control freak. <laughs> exactly. She was a Virgo even in her death. Uh, she, she uh, my friend who died, her name's Catherine. She and I share a birthday. So, yes, she was oh. a Virgo. Also. Um, <sighs> Amazing. Yep. I wanted to read another note that we got from one of our listeners. This is a little bit of a, a longer one, but she says, Cancer changed my life forever, not only physically, but also emotionally. Anytime I get a pimple or a rash or a random spasm of pain, I'm convinced I have a recurrence. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something, too, that we I'm sorry, I'm doing the thing that I did when I was drunk, even though I'm not drunk. <laughs> but I want to mm-hmm. clarify that when you're you, when you have advanced cancer, you can go NED. Mm-hmm. No evidence of disease. Right. And then, you know, you still are living in fear that it's going to come back mm-hmm. and when it's going to come back and what those symptoms are. Right. And she says, I have CPTSD or complex post-traumatic stress disorder and need therapy and probably medication too. But because of said CPTSD, I feel physically ill anytime I have to step foot in a medical office. And so that that's from Vanessa. Um, she does go on to talk a little bit about how she had a hard time keeping her bubbly positive outlook internally she really felt like she only had to keep it together for a year or so and then she would be okay but that's not been true for her Mm -hmm. and so that leads me to my next tip which is get into therapy even if you don't feel like you're in a mental health crisis there is so much that can be processed in therapy and Mm -hmm. that goes for your family too you know if your spouse or your partner has the willingness to go to therapy. I really think that it's great for the entire family. Absolutely. It sucks when you do have anxiety or PTSD that keeps you from getting those services. But if you can work through it, it's been absolutely integral for me. And I did also have to get over feeling like, is it worth it for me to do therapy when I have stage four cancer, which is such a fucked up thing oh, to think about yourself? That is so fucked up, Steph. I know. That is so fucked up. Just <laughs> it really is, though, because it's like, am I worth it? And that's totally why I needed yes, therapy, too. Yes, that is. But I've heard that this is a common question, like how much working on myself is worthwhile. And it is worthwhile. Of course, it's worthwhile. See, this I feel like is one of those great examples how nobody understands until you're in that position, which I have absolutely witnessed with being diagnosed with cancer. Like you cannot fully imagine what it would be like, which you obviously do imagine all the time, not all the time, but you know, yeah, throughout your life, you imagine what it would be like. And then it actually happens. And some of those things very much are exactly what it's like, but then other things are like, Whoa, which is why we have whole episodes about the dumb shit people say to you because they don't get it and why it hits so much of a miss. Yeah. But like what you just said, like me as a non-metastatic person, cancer person, it wouldn't occur to me that I would think that. But I'm sure that other people are like, of course she thought that, you know. It's like, you know, my kids' rain boots are a little bit too small. Should I buy new ones this season since it's about to stop raining like that's totally the feeling um but it's about myself and I'm so grateful that my therapist has been just like uh don't be ridiculous you know like you could die tomorrow and it would still be worth 
prioritizing your mental health. But yeah. I mean, again, hopefully your cancer center has these resources available. Mine does. And they have kids therapy groups when it's not COVID. Mm-hmm. They have therapists available to talk to your kids. They have therapists available to talk to parents about how to approach this with, with your kids. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that is really worth spending some time on. At least it has been for me. Hell yeah. Yeah. And kind of in the same vein is consider the point of knowing your prognosis. What do you mean? Um, so when I got the call from my medical oncologist, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> hey, Rach, by the way, who followed us on Instagram. <gasps> oh, my gosh. They're oncologists. A highlight of my life. That means she has <laughs> listened to your podcast. I can't believe it. I know. Right. Um. Anyway, we're going to have to stop talking shit about her. <laughs> Just kidding. We love you, Rach. Um, she's she's keeping me alive. Thanks, Rach. Um, so anyway, when she called, you know, to tell me that the spots on my bones were metastatic sites, I asked her a question that kind of danced a little bit around the prognosis issue. And she was like, do you want to talk about this? Is prognosis something that you want to talk about right now? And I took a second to think about it. And I said, no, you know, actually, I don't. Mm -hmm. And I think that's hard because we want those answers. We want some Mm -hmm. sort of concrete thing to understand. Mm -hmm. But that's just not how fucking cancer works. Mm -hmm. And new medications are coming out all the time. You might respond great to some of them and not at all to others. Statistics do not tell your story. Right. and. In my opinion, it's just not really worth it because what's going to happen is going to happen regardless. So your advice, I thought you said know the point of your prognosis. Is that what you said? I said consider the point of knowing your prognosis. Oh, consider the point of knowing your prognosis. I understand what you mean. Like, okay, sorry. Yeah. So figure out, you know, what you would stand to gain by knowing what your prognosis is. Mm Mm-hmm. And if you are the type of person who needs to know, do consider, like we talk about over and over in so many of these episodes, that just what Steph was saying, like new stuff is coming out all the time. Cancer treatment moves exponentially fast. There was actually a really great meme. My sister, hi, Liz. What's up? She also (laughs) follows us on Instagram. Um, (laughs) um, But she shared it. Um, aimed at all those knickknacks we went to high school with who also follow us. What's up, you guys? Um, but there's a, a large degree of anti-vaxxers in our hometown. Anyway, but it was like, you know, the argument of the vaccine being, how could they develop this vaccine in one year? You know, where it's like, no, they've been working on mRNA vaccines for, yeah, you know, or it took this amount of years for them to do the chicken pox vaccine so you know but it was like whatever you do don't get the iphone 11 because they've only developed it in one year since the iphone 10 (laughs) and it took them seven years to do the iphone one or just like whatever you know yeah but it is true that's how cancer research is moving like the the statistics it takes one thing that is slow because you can't speed up time is reflecting on statistics right because if you want to see how things change over the course of five years you can't just speed up that five years so 
the shit that we haven't even been able to do the math on that has been going on four or five years in many different kinds of cancers is like bonkers. Yeah. You know, people are living so much longer with many, many cancers. It's so true. And, you know, we look at like the 10 year survival rate and the five year survival rate, but some drugs haven't been around for 10 years or for five years. Exactly. Um, and so it's not worth it. It's um, really for me all about putting one foot in front of the other and taking the bullshit as it comes, you know, deal mm-hmm. with what's in front of your face and get through that thing, then do yeah. the next thing. And there's also a point, I mean, depending on where you're at when you're having this conversation about prognosis with your oncologist of like, do you think it's important for me to know? Like if, if it is going to be something that is very, very soon, I mean, wouldn't you want to know stuff? I mean, Oh, of course you clearly knew you were nowhere near that. But I think just to make it clear, this advice is like, just, you know, you could ask your oncologist if they think it would be valuable for you to know it at this point and why, right? or like, tell me when it is, close enough that you think I should know. For sure. And I think that there are some obvious points at which the conversation changes, you know, when you Mm -hmm. run out of treatments, then clearly, you know, your oncologist is going to say, we don't have any other treatments available for you. And Mm -hmm. then it's a different conversation. Yeah. But right in the beginning, you know, the people who are hopefully listening to this episode after having just been diagnosed, there's Mm -hmm. no reason for you to say, hey, so how long have I got? Because (laughs) nobody knows nobody knows how long you've got and i think that that takes a huge amount of self-awareness to know that in order to keep going you need to not Mm -hmm. have all the details yes and like cancer people we do weird shit you know like we have so many different coping mechanisms jesus right and that's just what you have to do you have to find the coping mechanisms that work for you that aren't actively harming you and Mm -hmm. just do those i mean if it means that you don't know what's happening in your body and that's what keeps you afloat then fine yeah if you need to stop all treatment and go live in hawaii fine yeah like totally (laughs) i know i've told this story before but there's a gal in one of my facebook groups who did just that she stopped treatment she uh went and lived in hawaii and nine years later she's still alive and kicking so (laughs) weird things happen i love it people just do what they need to do to live their lives in a way that is meaningful to them Mm -hmm. what yes me i heard that gasp oh i didn't mean to oh i don't know i'm just like sweating like a freaking (gasps) hog right now oh no just keep keep rolling it's the lupron (gasps) i steered you wrong with the lupron no, I know. I changed my menopause shot because I didn't want the needle to be the size of Albuquerque going into my stomach once a month. So I got the little shot with a different med. Whew. I just wanted you to do what I was doing. I want to do every drug you do stuff. <laughs> but I forgot to tell you it's so sweaty over here. It is so sweaty. I'm I'm very hot flashy, but I'm not sweaty. But now I'm I'm just like a... I'm a rainforest. <laughs> Anyways, enough about that. So we have one other letter that has so much insight in it. Two letters. Oh, sorry. Can I read that one from Adrian? Yes, please Two? do. Is there room in that? Yeah. This episode? Okay, uh-huh. I can read that after you do this one, but I just wanted to make sure that we could do both of them. Absolutely. 
Okay, so this is a letter that I'm just going to cherry pick from um, from a friend named Gal, who is so insightful and has so much interesting stuff to say that I think from a perspective that doesn't get talked about a lot. Gail says that the cancer social worker and cancer patient relationship should have been stressed as an imperative for them. She says, I've encountered homelessness, suicidality, job loss, extreme poverty because it's cancer is a chronic tsunami in your life. And I love how she puts that. The chronic tsunami is Mm such an apt picture. Absolutely. Uh, She says it does something to your mind when what seems to feel and look like a minefield going off is just constantly happening when metastasis begins. Mm -hmm. Also, as an AYA or adolescent young adult with metastasis, the rest of the cancer world feels set up for those who have already accomplished certain things in life. Mm-hmm. And lots of AYA resources address the gaps in those things. You know, like I imagine she's talking about you have jobs, you have a support system, you know, mm-hmm. you have a place to live, um, right. you have access to healthy foods. But Gail says metastasis takes time and continues and you age out of being an AYA, but you're still navigating cancer and life through the impact of scarcity that was created via cancer as an AYA. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're an adolescent or a young adult going through all of this treatment that keeps you from maybe, you know, going to college, going, right. even getting a GED or getting a high school education. You know, you're not able to build those connections and networking and start a family and all this stuff Mm -hmm. and then you age out of being an AYA where there's all of those intensive stop gaps uh, like therapists and uh, financial aid and Mm -hmm. support for insurance and stuff and you're just kind of dumped into adulthood and so Gail goes on to say we navigate this journey differently and it's traumatic to again lose what was known as one's safe space and normal I wish that someone would have been realistic with me that after so much chemo, it really was just never in the cards for me to have kids Mm -hmm. and having an invitation into uh, some kind of help in navigating the grieving process would have benefited her. Mm -hmm. Metastasis for me has been about finding and defining a sense of wellness for myself within the definition of illness. So I don't want to go on too much because so Mm -hmm. much of what she says is is really, really, really powerful. Um, Maybe we can, you know, link to some of these statements like on our website or put them in our show notes Mm -hmm. because I feel like there are just so many nuggets of wisdom in her letter. Yeah. I have never really thought about that jump from AYA to just regular old cancer person. You know, if you are dealing with a chronic cancer diagnosis or even a second diagnosis down the road where suddenly you're just thrown in there with all these people who, you know, if you're going to support groups, it might be people newly diagnosed going through similar treatments as you that have kids and went to college and, you know, yeah, you didn't because of this. And then I think it's very interesting when they say the thing about the safe space, because I think that we don't actually talk about this. And if you're new in this cancer game, you might be like, what the fuck, you psycho. But <laughs> I've actually heard this from a lot of people and I've felt it myself where after a while when you're going through treatment, those appointments do feel like 
your safe place because someone's there taking care of you and it's the thing that's on your mind 24 7 yep so even if it is going into a surgery or going into the freaking chemo chair you would think you would just be like crying all morning because you have to go to chemo or something but you're kind of like I gotta pack my bag you know like because it is like your part-time job suddenly or a full-time job and it's the place where everything is concentrated and I could see where you're living such a life as an AYA your peers are not you're not having the same relationship that you would if you weren't in the situation but then when you are at the AYA cancer clinic that is your place where you're around other people mm-hmm. and that's your normal, which is fucked up, but that's your normal. Yeah. And then that gets taken away from you. And now you're just shoved into the fucking normal place of Providence with all these old ass geezers. <laughs> right. No offense me, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel you. Totally. And, you know, sort of on the heels of that letter, I want to wrap up my own personal tips with take all the aid that you can get Mm -hmm. just pretend that it's like a hotel vanity and you're just like scooping the lotions into your backpack (laughs) just Mm -hmm. take every single bit of help and financial aid and free shit that you can get your little fingers on it's there for you. It's what it is there for. It's there for you. Take the free wig. Take the scarves. Take the meal train. Take it all because mm-hmm. people love to give things. These are set up for people to utilize. Mm-hmm. Don't be a hero. You know, just fucking take the help. Also, it's other people's like way of not feeling useless. And we talk about this, too, in other episodes. It's like you're almost doing people a favor by like letting them volunteer at some organization that's going to like yeah. do something for you or you know it's like people's way of like feeling helpful in a hard ass world so just let them do it right can i read this um one last letter that came in to our email inbox which is cancerforbreakfast.gmail.com send us an email yes please do um okay this is from a newly diagnosed gal named adrianne And let's see. Adrienne says, hi, Amy and Steph. Greetings from the East Coast. My name is Adrienne, 36 years old. I live in Brooklyn, New York with my husband and two kids and have truly loved your podcast. I was diagnosed with stage four triple positive inflammatory breast cancer in May of this year. In the whirlwind of trying to make sense of this new world we were thrown into, my husband tried out several cancer podcasts and recommended Cancer for Breakfast to me. Oh, that's nice. I started listening on my first day of treatment and have been a fan ever since. Wow. I have even gone back and re-listened to some episodes as I've gotten further along in the process, which has also been super helpful. Some topics just resonate more at different points in my cancer journey, and it has been so great to have CFB as a resource to turn to for comfort, information, and humor. Thank you. That's so nice. Oh, thanks. Stage four story ahead, so all the trigger warnings, smiley face. (laughs) (laughs) My whole story starts when I was breastfeeding my second child who was born in August of 2020. Nursing had been going fine for several months, but soon my left breast started to feel a bit firm and there was less milk coming out. No lump, just a firmness and sensitivity to touch. 
It felt just like engorgement, which I had experienced many times with both of my kids, but I didn't think very much of it. I did all the remedies for weeks, pumping, cold cabbage, warm showers, but nothing helped. I figured that must be a really clogged duct. After a while, my son stopped nursing from that side altogether because there was not anything coming out. I emailed my OB to have her prescribe me some antibiotics in case it was mastitis, even though I didn't have some of the signature symptoms like warmth on that side or a fever. Antibiotics didn't work either. So I finally made an appointment to see my OB in person. By this time, my left breast was really firm all over. The skin was pink and it was really sensitive. I even had trouble sleeping comfortably on my left side. For some reason, I still wasn't expecting a bad diagnosis. My husband kept saying that I needed to get this thing checked out, but I still had it in my head that it was a clogged duct or something. Of course you did. Yeah, because right, of course. this doesn't happen to me. This doesn't happen to me. That's how it feels, right? It just made sense to me. I suppose in the back of my mind, there was a thought that it could be something serious, but I just figured statistically it is probably nothing, which is true. It probably is nothing. Mm -hmm. Like if you scroll through WebMD, when you have a headache, you can convince yourself that you have all kinds of terrible ailments. Mm -hmm. When in reality, you probably are just dehydrated or something. That's usually the kind of mindset I have. And this time was no different. When I went to my OBGYN, she took one look at me and said, no, that doesn't look right. She got me an appointment with a radiologist the same day where they did an ultrasound and I got a mammogram and biopsy a couple of days later. That's awesome. They did that fast for you, by the way. Yeah. Because God, do they make people wait sometimes and kills me. All the while, my OBGYN kept in touch with me, calling me pretty much every other day to keep tabs on me and making sure that I got to my appointments. She even had me see a surgeon before the biopsy results even came in. The writing was pretty much on the wall. The day after I saw my surgeon and the day before I was scheduled to see an oncologist, I got the call that confirmed what I already knew. It was breast cancer. We hit the ground running, so it was a whirlwind of appointments. The next step was to test whether it had spread to other parts of my body and whether it was inflammatory, which is a pretty aggressive type of breast cancer where the breast cancer cells have grown into the skin. It was at that point that I learned that, like Amy, I cannot allow myself to Google. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Once I heard the term inflammatory breast cancer, IBC, thrown out, I went down a rabbit hole of statistics, pictures and anecdotes, all of which were hella scary. Not to mention that all the pictures I saw looked so much like what my boob looked like at that time. With my first chemo appointment on the calendar for a week away, I finally got the first bit of good news. The skin biopsy they took from my breast had come back negative, which meant the cancer was not inflammatory. This was such a relief, and it felt like I was finally catching the tiniest bit of a break. At this point, I was so exhausted, and I hadn't even started treatment yet. I wanted to just curl up in bed and, like, take a week-long nap. I for sure didn't want to go to another appointment, but I am nothing if not a planner. So I did my due diligence by making the appointment at Memorial Sloan Kettering here in New York City to seek a second opinion. I was sure that they would have nothing to say, but I figured I should take advantage of the fact that I lived in the same city as one of the best cancer setters in the country. So days before I was scheduled to start chemo, I went to MSK to check that item off my list. I was still waiting to get scheduled for a scan to see if the cancer had metastasized. 
I was scheduled to meet the surgeon in the morning and the oncologist later that afternoon at home by telehealth visit. When I showed up for my morning appointment, both doctors had come to the exam room. Their schedule had opened up that day, so they were both able to examine me at the same time, which was so nice. Not only did it save me from the agony of another appointment, but it was comforting to see them work together and be on the same page in real time. Yeah. They both had already looked at my test results and slides, and after they examined me, they both were in agreement. I had inflammatory breast cancer. What the fuck? Oh, Oh, God. So many ups and downs during the diagnosis time. I totally feel you. I told them that I had already had a skin biopsy that came back negative so that that meant it definitely wasn't inflammatory, right? The doctors, both of whose specialty happened to be IBC, very calmly explained that in IBC, the cancer cells spread throughout the skin on the breast and there are spots of the skin that have cancer cells and spots on the skin that have none. If the biopsy was taken from a piece of the skin with no cancer cells, it would have come back negative. I was sitting there stunned and they told me that they were absolutely sure of the assessment. They went on to tell me that the skin biopsy that was done at the other hospital was a tool that was only about 60% effective in diagnosing IBC. What the hell? To be honest, if you would have come to me first, I wouldn't have even done a skin biopsy. She said the outward appearance of the breast is the main telltale sign for IBC. And I had the textbook case. They dealt with cases like this all the time and were absolutely sure that I had this very rare and very aggressive type of breast cancer. They relayed this information without any judgment of the other medical team who had totally missed this huge detail. IBS makes up only one to five percent of all breast. <laughs> I think you mean IB, IBC. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you catch that? We, I mean, I just wanted to look like a fool in front of everybody. I, <laughs> Thank IBC you. might give you IBS. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, I hope that you cut that. But if you don't, <laughs> I understand. I understand if you have to leave it in. IBC makes up for only one to five percent of all breast cancer cases. That is so crazy. So there is not nearly as much research done for it. Most doctors who are not specialized in it have limited expertise in the diagnostic tools and protocol. This is so crazy and exactly why when we were talking earlier in the episode about like ask if you should see a specialist, ask if there's some other place that specializes in whatever they're finding because, wow. After having that bomb dropped on me, I decided to switch to Memorial Sloan Kettering for treatment. Yeah, you did. They knew exactly what I had and could give me exactly the treatment plan that I needed. They were even able to get my PET scan that day, which I had been waiting on from the other hospital. I know it's been said before, but get that second opinion. Um, we should have a like clip we play every time we have to say that. Like <laughs> yeah. it's like get the second opinion, ding ding, or something. You know, <laughs> and just like yes, <sighs> we'll work on that. By the time I got my scan results, I had already succumbed to the fact that this was just not my ear. So when they told me it had spread to my lymph nodes and my liver, I just thought. Yeah, of course it did. I was finally told that my cancer was stage four. Even in the best of circumstances, I will be dealing with this disease for the rest of my life. Lots of well-meaning people have said that they just know things will turn out okay or have a feeling that things will work out. 
they may truly feel that way. But I think that often they are trying to comfort themselves as much as they are trying to comfort me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I really don't know ultimately how these things are going to turn out. And not knowing is really scary. These 10-year survival rates that get thrown around, I think, are meant to be helpful and informative, but they are such a bummer. If I was diagnosed in my 70s, maybe even in my 60s, 10 years is a number I could possibly wrap my head around. But being diagnosed at 35 with two small children, the prospects of surviving for 10 years is not comforting. My doctors have been great about reminding me that they are not focused on statistics. Mm Mm-hmm. But they're focused on treating my body and my cancer specifically, and that I am taking the best medicine to treat my disease. So far for me, dealing with stage four has been about striking a balance between hope and acceptance, hoping that by the time my next reoccurrence rolls around, there will be some new drug or treatment that changes the game, or at least gives me a slightly better odds. Or that I'll be one of those one in a million cases where the patient just lives way longer than anyone expects them to. All while accepting that this disease will be a part of my life forever. It will probably be the thing that will end my life and it will happen much sooner than if I didn't have cancer. I am constantly trying to find the right balance of both of these thoughts in my head. The balance I strike is different for me from day to day, touching every point of the spectrum. I have never been one who wants things sugar-coated for them, and I am so averse to the toxic positivity that so often accompanies a cancer diagnosis. I am a realist at heart, but I feel that I do need to allow myself to hope, even if the odds are stacked against me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am about four months into the treatment process at the cancer center every week for THP, chemo, and two immunotherapies. In August, I had my three-month scan to see how the treatment was working. My cancer had shrunk everywhere by about 50%. I am told that this is really a great response, and it means that we are on the right track as far as treatment goes. Fuck yes. Even though this is still the very early stages of a long journey with this disease, I am allowing myself to celebrate. So I am taking my husband and a few good friends out for pasta and wine. Thank you both so much for your podcast and for making it to the end of this crazy long letter. You guys are the best, Adrienne. I am so glad we got this letter because I do think it's so important to kind of lay out a diagnosis story in this episode and kind of how things can kind of roll out. And I really appreciate you sharing this with us. And it is just such a fucking bitch of a disease. And I'm so sorry that you're having to deal with this when you have so many other things you should be doing right now. Yeah, I do, though, love how she ended the letter by saying that you have to strike a balance between being a realist and also still holding on to some hope because yes the two i think are both just a huge part of your life when you're a metastatic cancer person heck yes i wonder hmm. like in in no way trying to be a toxic positivitist positivityist <laughs> cuz fuck those guys but i really do kind of want to say that thing about how it isn't anybody's fault because I feel like we do spend a lot of time internally sort of thinking it is even though we maybe don't say it out loud of the things that we've done or whatever experiences we've had or things we've been exposed to or whatever 
risky things. But cancer is just a fucking mess up of cells. Like, yep. I know we all know what cancer is and I'm not trying to be a fucking idiot, but I really, I think we'll link this um, at the bottom of this episode, but there's a really, really good episode of the We Have Cancer podcast. I don't know if you've listened to We Have Cancer. It's a great podcast. Um, this guy's been doing it for like ever and he is um, also a metastatic cancer haver has been for very many years and he does this great podcast but this woman named Kat Arney joined him and this is episode 161 if you want to look it up but she wrote a book called Rebel Cell and I would actually love to have her on the show sometime she's this wonderful like geneticist woman who she has her own podcast actually called Genetics Unzipped that I haven't checked out Ooh. and I don't know if it's I don't think it's cancer specific but she's definitely very knowledgeable still I'm intrigued that sounds cool. right yeah she's cool she's really a smart uh, lady and she explains things in a really great way but she was explaining just how people think of cancer and what it actually is when you look at it and how the very act of being alive essentially means that cancer will exist where there is life there is cancer there is basically cancer in everything there's cancer so far back that they have found in fish birds reptiles then like a 77 million year old dinosaur had a tumor in its bones wow like a cancer tumor in its bones wow essentially wherever there's life there is cancer i guarantee that dino wasn't smoking cigarettes in his (laughs) 20s all right she also has like a really good way of explaining what cells in your body do and like you know we all know that like or most of us know that everyone has cancer cells and usually they just don't take hold and our body turns them over and you know and we don't get cancer but some of us do but she explains it as like your body is like a society full of cells and they all have rules and they all have like parts and things that they do you know like your cells know to like don't take more than you need or like stick to what you're doing and like don't pollute like all of these things Uh in a society that make a good society and it's very rule driven but some cells are like a little more loosey-goosey than that you know some some cells in the society like might like break the rules or bend the rules a little bit and they she calls them cheats in society and she's like cheats will always emerge like they just will emerge and what it all depends on is how the society reacts to that cheat. So if too many people are breaking the rules, then society doesn't work, right? You can't have like a ton of people cheating and like not using stoplights or something. Then like stoplights don't work if you're not following the rules. And so she basically says people think it's like, oh, there's just one cancer cell and then it divides and then it multiplies and then, it, you know, and then suddenly you have a huge tumor. But she's like, it's essentially this is happening all the time, but it's not a modern disease, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And she says like jellyfish and sponges are the only things they have found that don't have cancer cells or they haven't found instances of that. Huh. Of Everything has it. Like every cell that you can create. Bees have cancer. Anything, 
that is multicellular. Cancer cells will emerge just because cancer is an emergent property. So when we're blaming ourselves and we're feeling so guilty, of course, we might have done things that increased our risk. But that in itself isn't like you didn't put the fucking nail in your coffin or like ruin your life by like raising your risk. Because look at all the other motherfuckers who are raising their risk right alongside you that didn't get cancer or haven't gotten it yet. So like don't spend so much time thinking about how much you drank or thinking about that shitty apartment that you knew had mold in it when you were living with that punk rock boy when you were 19 or whatever. That wasn't actually me, but I know it's a lot of our listeners by our demographic. May have been me. (laughs) I knew it. (laughs) But yeah, you know. Yes. Yes. And I'm excited to listen to this podcast. Both of them, actually. It is really good. I want to reach out to this woman. She she was really awesome. Um, But we'll put a link to that. Um, We have cancer thing. And uh yeah. Maybe we'll have the host of that on the show sometime, too. I don't know. That would be rad. Do we have guests? I don't know. I'm afraid to introduce people all to... <laughs> we have a dynamic. They would have to be the right person. <laughs> it's true. Well, we do have a guest coming up on our sex episode soon. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Um. So stay tuned for to that. Well, do you want to do some rat-a-tat-tatting? I do. special request for rats she wanted to hear about uterine cancer what's up patty patty so uh unfortunately she actually said this when she made her request there's not a whole lot out there about advancements in treating uterine cancer um unfortunately there hasn't been a whole ton happening with treatment and science but in the last few years right it's the most recent thing I found besides this study that I'm going to talk about was from 2016. But just kind of briefly, I got this info from Cairo 7 article in a news story by DD Sun. And this is about endometrial cancer. So endometrial cancer is cancer of the lining of the uterus. Mm-hmm. And that makes up 95% of uterine cancers. It afflicts one in 37 cisgender women, and it's the most common gynecological cancer in the U.S. It's more common than cervical cancer, Mm -hmm. but unfortunately, it has no integrated screening tool like we have for cervical cancer, which is, you know, the pap smear. Mm -hmm. And this is wild. Black women who are diagnosed with endometrial cancer have a 90% higher mortality rate. Whoa. So just to put that in simpler terms. Why? I mean, I can guess, but break it down. Right. That means that they are almost twice as likely to die. And so there are a bunch of reasons for that, all of which pretty much come down to racism. But the doctors at the University of Washington are trying to educate people about the symptoms of endometrial Mm -hmm. cancer. And um, it's not related at all to endometriosis, which we hear a lot about, like when we're younger, right? People with uteruses, and you know, you've got cramping and irregular bleeding. But this is when your 
endometrial tissue, which is the tissue, like I said, inside of your uterus becomes malignant. Mm -hmm. And there are cures available. Um, There are even screening procedures, but there's just not enough education. Mm -hmm. And so the main symptom is that once your period has stopped, as in you've gone through menopause, Mm -hmm. you, you start bleeding again. Doesn't necessarily have to be severe, but that is the main symptom. So bleeding after you've stopped. Is that a common age that it happens is like around menopause or is it? It is. Okay. Yeah, it's more, much more common after menopause, but it does still happen in younger people. So it's usually diagnosed with an ultrasound, but it's harder to diagnose with black women, apparently because of just difference is in their biology. Sometimes they have um, thicker endometrial tissue, apparently. Mm-hmm. And so... What they're saying is that black women really need to advocate for a biopsy if they're having symptoms. Mm -hmm. The biopsy is an easy and quick procedure, they say. So you want to look for your bleeding going from normal to very irregular if you Mm -hmm. haven't stopped bleeding yet. And if you do notice that happening, just right away, ask for that biopsy. You have to advocate for yourself. And then, like I said, the problem really comes down to racism in healthcare. Black women mm-hmm. just get different care across the board. Um, mm-hmm. They're seen as drug seeking, which is bullshit. Uh, they're seen as having a different pain tolerance based on over 100 year old bunk science that was based in mm-hmm. slavery times. It was basically just a way for enslavers to feel better about the pain that they inflicted on black people by Mm -hmm. saying that they have a higher pain tolerance, which is obviously not true. So like a doctor would hear somebody say this hurts or I'm having this pain and they would say, oh, you're fine. Yeah. Yeah. They would say, oh, well, you couldn't possibly be having that much pain. You know, no, you're exaggerating. So you must be drug seeking or whatever, Mm -hmm. which is just so awful. And then if you don't know to say, give me a fucking biopsy, then you might just get turned away. Right. In shame. But if you're saying, give me a biopsy, yeah. there's a better chance they actually will. Exactly. And, you know, keep asking for it. Mm-hmm. If you feel like your bleeding is irregular, ask for the biopsy and keep asking. Um. So this was a study that I found. It is from Dana-Farber Cancer Center. And This phase two study was published in April in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, and it showed that a WEE1-directed therapy in uterine serous carcinoma, or USC, Mm -hmm. which accounts for about 10% of uterine cancers, but up to 40% of deaths from the disease, Mm -hmm. has demonstrated strong and durable activity, Hmm. which is good news. They say the trial involved 35 patients all of whom had previously been treated with a platinum-based chemotherapy. (laughs) So, you know, very fancy. Mm -hmm. I thought I did not know that there were platinum-based chemotherapies, but... Love it. Interesting. So these people took the drug Adavosertib, A-D-A-V-O-S-E-R-T-I-B, orally on a set schedule. So it's not an infusion chemo. And then... At the median follow-up time of 5.9 months, 10 of the 34 patients who they were able to evaluate had shrinkage of their tumors. And so that's a response rate of almost 30%. Amazing. And there was one patient with a complete response. So 
That's great. Um, the responses they say were durable with a median duration of response of nine months and a 47.1% of patients remaining progression free at six months. Great. Yeah. Um, what the drug does is it takes advantage of a weakness called replication stress. So mm-hmm. basically the cancer cells get tired of replicating so fast. And um, with USC, the uterine serous carcinoma, um, the DNA is damaged due to a gene abnormality. And then the cancer just like goes wild with the body's checkpoints disabled, which is mm-hmm. what that gene abnormality does. And the adivocertib, it targets the protein called WEE1 or <laughs> WE1 <laughs> that regulates mm-hmm. those checkpoints. Um, so, you know, a response rate of 30% is better than nothing. It's still not obviously what we want for Mm -hmm. this more rare, but more deadly kind of endometrial cancer. Mm -hmm. And Patty was right on the money when she said it doesn't get as much attention. And so especially for a cancer that can be cured Mm -hmm. by a simple removal of the uterus. Right. If it's caught early, just take that fucker out right so let's catch him early there's just no excuse for that mortality rate so um you know if you have that irregular bleeding get checked ask for the biopsy take mm-hmm. the bull by the horns yeah um thanks steph and we need to shout out a few new um buy me a coffee and patreon subscribers who donated on the ten dollar or more level monthly that's right thank you guys thank you christy bailey Mm -hmm. thank you andrea sanchez and thank you to allison fergal or fergal thank you i feel like i knew i was gonna blow it on allison's last name so allison fergal Fergal. i I haven't actually seen how she spelled it i was just copying how you pronounced it so i probably didn't actually help (laughs) well great and if you want to be a patreon Give us a monthly donation or buy us a coffee, which is a monthly recurring small donation as well. We'll have that in the notes. Your support really helps us get this show made and pays for some of those overhead expenses. Bills, bills, bills. You know, tissues to to wipe our sweat from our (laughs) foreheads during the show. That's a tax write-off or something at least, right? That's true. Or you know what? This month of October, just fucking give to Metaviver. Yes. Do it. Absolutely. Amy, I believe I was promised a treat. Treat? Oh! This old thing? That old thing. Shall I read your fortune? Yes. Okay. I'm waiting. Everyone listening, this is for all of us. Is this fortune cookie ASRM? <laughs> A- ASMR? Is that what it is? M- MDMA. Yes. <laughs> IBS. Oh, well, first of all, I ripped it in half, which oh. we all know is good luck to begin with. So let me get the other half for you. Ooh. And then I dropped that. Other oh, half. my God. Hold on, Amy. you guys. This get is... it together. Oh, my God. Where is it? I can't find it. Oh, my God. This, this is a disaster. Did you seriously lose it? I mean, oh, yeah, here it is. Okay, what does it say? Okay, I found the other piece. So it says, After readying the every emotion, 
there is understanding entering the realm. Mm. Hmm. Actually, that's pretty good. That is good. That's a vibe. I'm, I'm feeling it for this episode. After readying the every emotion, there is understanding entering the realm. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes, too, if you need to take it in and have a minute with it. <laughs> yeah, going to sit with that. Anyway, good cookie. Good episode. Should we just re-record? <laughs> <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Goodbye. Cancer for Breakfast is hosted by Amy Dials and Stephanie Lejeunesse and produced by Nathan McGeehee. Our theme music is written and performed by Vivivir. Find us at cancerforbreakfast.com, Instagram at cancerforbreakfast, and email at cancerforbreakfast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening.